It took two years, but they finally got rid of the annoying guy. When you have fought countless battles, when your troops have won and lost innumerable times, what do you do next? The answer is simple. Fight a campaign. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is GJ and as you may hear, I am not here with Nathan today. This is my first time flying solo and the reason for this is because, well actually it's twofold. Nathan has been very busy of late and he has asked me to do some shows so that you can enjoy the schedule that we won't have any holes in our schedule and also because Nathan's lamented last time we spoke how he would have loved to have listened to his own show without recording it so Nathan here's your chance and I hope I can do you proud what we are going to do today is have a little bit of a look at the fifth edition scenarios this fifth edition campaign packs that were released. Five of them have been released and I do want to make some future episodes where we have an in-depth look at each of these packs but first we're going to do a general overview. What we are also going to do for this episode is we're going to skip news and hobby and the reason for that is because we don't know yet when these episodes will air. We're just using them as filler to, to fill up some holes in the schedule and since we don't really know when these will air. It's not really relevant to talk about hobby stuff with it maybe some months ago. So uh, for these solo episodes we're going to skip that and you will have to wait for another regular episode to hear some more hobby updates. So let's jump right in. Five campaign packs have been released over the course of 5th edition. And these campaign packs were in order of release the Grudge of Drong, The Idol of Gork, Circle of Blood, Perilous Quest and Tears of Aisha. Now each of these campaign packs came in a cardboard box. It was about um, a few centimeters thick and inside the box you would always find the same set of things. You would have a campaign booklet and in this booklet you would have an introduction how to play a Warhammer campaign. That would be a setting which would give you the historical information about the battles that you were going to fight. There would always be four scenarios and each scenario would have some special rules, some special characters. There would be a layout of the battlefield and then at the end of the booklet there were usually a couple of appendices. One of them with the armies that were used in the historical battles so um, you could then if you wanted to replay those uh, the same way as you would a Warhammer White Dwarf battle report you could just select all those models from your collection or set out to collect those specific models. Uh, there was an appendix with alternative armies so that if you were for example playing the Grudge of Drong, which is High Elves versus Dwarves. And you did not have High Elves or Dwarves. You could maybe try to use the alternative armies way up at the back. Um, which are in this case uh, Wood Elves. And there is some rules for using Dark Elves. Maybe in, in combination with the Dwarves instead of the High Elves. So it will give you some options. 
And there would also be an appendix 3 which would give you some rules for setting up the terrain. And there would be assembly instructions at the back. And those assembly instructions were for the much coveted cardboard terrain that came with the box. And we will go through a brief overview in a few minutes and show you what was actually in each of those boxes. What kind of terrain did you get? Further in the box was not only the cardboard terrain, uh, but there were some battle scrolls, just some leaflets, and those battle scrolls would tell you which units you could use, and they would also include special rules for the special characters, and also some special scenario rules. Sometimes they would give you some tactical advice how to play out the scenario if you were one or the other player. Uh, also in those boxes would be included a roster pad that would be included in just about every box in 5th edition, I believe. Well, maybe not a magic box, but at least in the, um, in the starter set you would get this nice little roster pad which was pre-printed where you could fill out the names of the units and the stats and the special rules and, and the points values. And I don't know if people used them back in the days. Um, I, I certainly did not myself. But then again, I came into the hobby a little bit later when 6th edition was out. So those roster pads for me are more of a curiosity and a thing of the past. Although um, I did use a similar roster pad to the one that was printed at the back of the 6th edition rulebook. And I quite liked it. It's, it's, it's nice. It uh, um, gives you a nice overview of the troops you have. So... Uh, if you are into roster pads, then hunt down those old campaign boxes. And also usually what would be included, and I named this just for the sake of completeness, was a sure small little flyer with what other GW products there were for sale back at the time. Now, as I mentioned, uh, five of these campaign boxes have been made. And the first one was the Grudge of Drong. It's a very iconic piece of artwork that you find on the cover. It's a couple of slayers with axes uh, all uh, waving around them, uh, axes in the sky. They um, repurposed this artwork back in the Storm of Chaos book. Um, so if you don't have the Grudge of Drunk box, but you do have the Storm of Chaos book, it's, it's uh, what's heads off the Dwarf Slayer cult section. And it's... Uh, very well chosen piece of artwork. In the box, the Grudge of Drong, you would get three cardboard buildings, and those buildings were all dwarf themed. There would be a dwarf brewery, which was a sort of squarish building with a uh, pointed roof and a big chimney sticking out of the side. You would get an ale house, a storehouse, and that building was a little bit weird. It was sort of in an in an angle, um, not really rectangular, but more like two rectangles in an L shape. It had a little outbuilding sticking out over the side from the roof. Uh, very nice, very characterful. And the biggest one that you got was a drinking hall, a dwarf drinking hall. And uh, these buildings were all decorated with some of those serrated edges that you uh, just put on on the top um, that would make 
assembling these buildings a little bit difficult. And then I, I have all those campaign sets uh, for myself. I haven't played through them all. But I have made all those terrain pieces. And assembling those terrain pieces was not always very easy. This is some, uh, some advanced stuff here. And um, even though it's just cardboard, or maybe because it is just cardboard, it's easy to make mistakes and if you for example put a drop of super glue in the wrong place and you put your finger on that place then you will tear off what has been printed on the cardboard so you will damage the buildings the cardboard buildings were of course all uh, flat when they came in the box and some of them had to be rounded some of the roofs had to be rounded so not all these cardboard buildings were very child friendly to assemble. I say this because I know that many of us who listen to this podcast now were um, maybe children or maybe in the teens back in the days when these um, campaign packs came out. And I think that's also the case why those buildings are so rare and, and those campaign packs are so expensive nowadays. Moving on to the next one. The next one is the Idol of Gork. And the Idol of Gork is fought out between Orcs and Goblins, uh, of course, because of the title, Idol of Gork, and the Empire. And in this campaign pack, you got a couple of characters that have been repurposed later, and um, some of them have been for sale for a long time. There was uh, Rutgar, who was a, an Empire, empire general, uh, Grotfang, an Orc warboss on a boar, uh, one of those models that was still very popular also in 6th edition, you had Odgit, the Night Goblin Shaman, Nazgob, the Orc Shaman. Both of those characters were also for sale in 6th edition. And Odgit was actually one of the first uh, Orc and Goblin characters that I got. Because I got the Orc and Goblin army deal back in the day. That's what started off my Warhammer addiction, I think I can call it. And... Odgit, uh, yeah, Odgit was was included in that army deal. He was in a blister with a um, with a uh, regular goblin shaman, and Odgit was then, of course, the night goblin shaman. With the idol of Gork, also came a couple of cardboard buildings. You had four orc huts, and these were rounded huts. They they are a little bit reminiscent of the huts that you got in the Warhammer battle reports, especially those. 40k orc buildings, a bit of the the tannish beige bleach bone kind of color. Um, these have a straw roof on them. Apart from the orc huts, there was a a keep, and it sounds more grand than it is. It is sort of a ruined keep. It is a bit U-shaped, and um, it does have a a um, walkway behind a couple of well, not really granulations, but there is a a little bit of a of a higher uh, a bit of cover that you can get. So it's it's a nice place, a nice terrain piece where you can put some archers on. It will give them some protection. I would say hard cover if you use these in your regular games. And then there was also the idol itself, and the idol of Gork. It consisted of two. Idols, uh, I believe it was an idol for Gork and an idol for Mork. It came on a plinth, and one of the idols had to be glued down, but the other one had to be uh, let, well, let loose, it, it, it detached, because that was the idol that had fallen down. 
and we will get to why it had fallen down and what the significance of that was when we will look at the Idol of Gork campaign pack as a little bit more in-depth. Idol of Gork is a campaign pack that also has some very nice artwork. There's a squick hopper very prominent on the front in front of an innumerable horde of marching night goblins and it's the same image that we used on the cover of the very first Hero Hammer fanzine so you can check it out over there if you want. The third campaign pack was the Circle of Blood and this was fought out between Bretonia versus the 4th edition Undead. And this is one of the campaign packs that I have actually played a little bit of, uh, which is only the first battle, the first scenario. Uh, we do plan on revisiting this and playing the second scenario. And that's something that I forgot to mention that I should have mentioned before. When you play this first scenario of any of those campaign packs, then you will have a clear winner and a clear loser. And in the case of that, then the winner will get bonuses in a later scenario and the loser will get penalties in a later scenario. And that's the case for each of these. And, and it's, it's sort of an ex escalation campaign where you fight usually three separate battles. And then the fourth one is a joint battle between all the forces that you used prior to this. The Circle of Blood came with some very nice gothic scenery. It had a bridge, a very wide bridge that you could actually use to march uh, a couple of units over. Um, if you had, I think, a, say a 5 by 4 unit or 5 white unit of humans or goblins or skeletons, they could easily march across there without having to reform or anything. You would also find a, uh, what has been called in the book, a Tower of Wizardry. Although when I first put this together, I thought this looks more like a church. And nothing wrong with that, of course. But uh, for a wizard's tower, I would expect something that's actually a tower. Um, well, just a tower. And this has a tower, but it also has a sort of squarish building attached to it. It still looks very nice, but well, I maybe wouldn't have called it a tower of wizardry. And of course, when you have undead, you also need some, well, graveyard scenery. And with this campaign booklet, with this campaign pack, came a mausoleum, a hero's tomb, which had a little spiky fence around the edges of the tomb. Very nice. And a couple of regular gravestones. And you could also supplement these, and which I think many people would have done, with gravestones that you got in this skeleton and the zombie kits. The fourth one of these campaign booklets was Perilous Quest. And Perilous Quest was fought out between Bretonia and the Wood Elves. With this booklet, you got one pavilion, which is a, a big tent. You got a wagon, which was also very nice. It got some plastic wheels. On it is this was the only set that had more than just the cardboard this also had the plastic wheels those uh, spoked wheels that you you also use for cannons and and some chariots and um in the assembly instructions it says that you have to attach these wheels in such a way that you have to get some wood some balsa wood or something else uh, and uh, maybe a popsicle stick and then just 
make the axles yourself and find a place where you think they fit underneath the wagon and just uh, glue them on there. Apart from the wagon and the pavilion, you got a couple of tents. You got three square tents and two hexagonal tents, and these were all decorated with Bretonian heraldry. And you also got a couple of hoardings, and those hoardings that uh, um, you can you, well, you can use them as fences, but they also make a a great divider when you have um, a Bretonian joust going on when you when you want to set that up. Now this campaign booklet was a little bit different compared to the others in that it did not give you in the appendices alternative armies, but it did spend some time revising the rules or maybe publishing them here for the first time. That were also in White Dwarf 215, UK White Dwarf 215, the Bretonian Joust, Bretonian Tournament. And it would give you the rules for creating a jousting team and then all the things that were with there. We will look at it more in depth when we discuss this full tilt booklet. The final one of these campaign packs was the Tears of Aisha. And Tears of Aisha was fought out between High Elves and Dark Elves. It is a classic Dark Elf invasion of Ultuan. You would get some high elf terrain with this. You would get one of those lovely obelisk type high elf beacons. You would get a watchtower, which is a very nice slender elven watchtower, which also means it is a little bit top heavy. So if you use this, you might want to glue it onto a base to just for stability. And it would give you an absolutely stunning high elf mansion. And this mansion was a big, square building with a little portico in front and two towers that were connected to it by bridges. Very nice, very characterful buildings that you got with these. And like I said, the terrain pieces in them of themselves make it worthwhile to get these different scenario packs. If I had to make a complaint about those scenario packs, it is that there were only ever five of them released. And when you look at those five that have been released, several of the armies are used more than once. You got High Elves that fight in both the Tears of Aisha and the Grudge of Drong. You've got Bretonians that are in Circle of Blood and in Perilous Quest. So if you were to uh, play something else, something other than these armies and well, you didn't know about the alternative armies or maybe your alternative army wasn't in the back of the book, then those campaign packs just weren't for you. And I can see how back in the day uh, the Tears of Aisha box would usually have been bought by High Elf players and the Grudge of Drong box would usually have been bought by Dwarf players. So that would be a little bit limiting uh, if you were not a collector and i would have loved to have seen some more options here some more different campaign packs maybe uh, there are a lot of armies that have not been visited by these um, chaos is a big one that is lacking and you can easily do something like a chaos invasion of the empire or um, maybe have a campaign pack with some jungle terrain and a uh, play it out between uh, Skaven, Clan Pestilence and the Lizardmen. 
there are, of course, many ways you can go about this. And, well, nothing is, of course, stopping you of making your own rules and your own campaign packs. But, yeah, that would be one of the issues that I would have with these campaign packs. Um, now, we will dive into these in future episodes, like I said. Uh, this is a bit of a short episode, and I hope you don't mind. It's going to be just an introduction, and maybe we will decide to paste the first one. Uh, I will do them in order. The Grudge of Drong will be the first one. Maybe we will just stick it on to the end of this one. March on, brave Dowie! March on! Hold our beers, it's time to settle some grudges. This is the War Games Orchard. Welcome to the show, my name is GJ and today I will be discussing the Grudge of Drong, the 5th edition Warhammer campaign that takes place between the Dwarves and the High Elves. Although, technically, it is actually a Dwarven Civil War. And the reason for that, we will dig into the lore about this, and, and it's very interesting. We will discuss what has happened here, and what is going to happen when you fight this campaign. Now, the Grudge of Drong takes place at about the start of the War of the Beard, so that's about 2,000 years before the advent of the Empire, before the Imperial Calendar starts. The Grudge of Drong is set in a little part of the old world that's been controlled by dwarfs. There are some mountains, and those mountains are rich in minerals and gemstones, and there has been a... A dwarf lord, Bron the Bold, a dwarf adventurer, who has discovered this land and he has settled there. Now, Bron, um, he, he built a, a hold, a Crag Bryn, it was called, and that was a very wealthy dwarf hold. Not all the dwarfs were happy with Bron holding this very wealthy land, and one of those was. Um, what's his name again? Thrunt. And Thrunt was someone who had some grudge against Bronn and, and his clan. And it's not even known in the history of the dwarves what this original grudge exactly was. But Thrunt did not like Bronn holding these lands. So what, uh, what Thrunt did was he built his own fortress, or at least his descendants did. And the fortress, uh, Kazat Thrunt, it was called, uh, it oversaw a pass, and the pass was called a Grudge Pass. This pass was more or less the only way that all the minerals and the precious gems that were mined by the dwarves of Craig Bryn could be transported onto the rest of the dwarven lands. And you can expect that Thrunt's descendants would just levy some taxes and profit from all the wealth that Bron and his, um, his descendants dug up. Now this grudge, this, this sort of, well, let's call it a civil war, has been going on for a couple of hundred years. And at this point in time, when the Grudge of Drawn campaign takes place, the dwarves of both holds have been sort of, well, depleted. Um, Kazat Trunt 
still has many dwarves and many dwarf warriors, but the line of Bronn has almost ended, and there is only one dwarf left that can trace her line back to Bronn, and that's the dwarf queen Helgar. The current dwarf lord that resides over Kazat Thrunt is Drong, Drong the Heart. Not to be confused with uh, Long Drong the Slayer Pirate, that's a completely different story. This is the Grudge of Drong featuring Drong the Heart. And when the Grudge of Drong takes place, some high elves have just landed on the shores. They've established an outpost and the high elf lord Eldroth, he has the outpost named after him. It's called Tol Eldroth. This high elf lord um, sees all the wealth that's being mined by the, the Bronlings, the, the dwarves under Queen Helgar. And he wants some of that. And the dwarves under Queen Helgar are very eager to do so because now they can sell it to the high elves without having to pay taxes to, uh, to Drong and his dwarves. Of course, Drong is not happy about this and they want to uh, take some measures into their own hands. Now, it is at this stage that Helgar and um, and Eldroth, the High Elf, they forge an alliance because Helgar does not really have many warriors. Mm, sort of none at all, actually. So when it comes to a clash, she will need the High Elves to fight her battles for them. And that is why this is a sort of a dwarf skirmish, this campaign, except that the dwarves fight against the High Elves. The High Elves have been... Um, hired or, or I should probably say allied in by Helgar and that is when this whole campaign takes place. Now the first of these four scenarios, all of these campaigns consist of four scenarios and the first of these is called the Battle of Grudge Pass. What happens is that um, one of the miners uh, by the name of Crud, Crud Matt Mattock, um, he is a, uh, I, I, sorry, I said a miner, he's a master engineer. And this master engineer, he is very upset about the riches flowing from the dwarf hands to the high elves. So what he does is he starts drinking and he gets his miner buddies to drink. And they uh, sort of go on a drunken rampage to settle the score with Helgar and to show her that this is not the dwarf way, you don't deal with the elves. Helgar, of course, allies in her high elf buddies, and um, Eldroth, the high elf lord of Tol Eldroth, he sends a party, a um, stopping party, to keep those dwarves from reaching the uh, fortress of Queen Helgar. The elves arrive, they block the oncoming dwarfs and they do this in Grudge Pass. So the first scenario is called the Battle of Grudge Pass. The High Elves are led by a guy named Fendar. And Fendar, he um, stops his troops in the pass and he draws a line in the sand, a little line in the sand, which is one bow shot away from the elven uh, battle line. And he tells the dwarves, if any of you cross this line, that is considered an act of war and we will start shooting. We will open fire 
and we will uh, kill you for it. Now, this is also represented in the scenario. The battlefield is set up in such a way that to the left and the right of the battlefield, you have a couple of hills, you have some rocky fields, and you also have two abandoned mine shafts. And those mine shafts, they have a nice little special rule that if somebody falls in, they have to take an initiative test or they will fall in and they will be lost forever. So, especially for the dwarves who are drunk, and that's also a rule they have to roll at the start of every turn, uh, these mine shafts can pose a real danger. The dwarves deploy um, up to Fendar's line in the dust, and the elves deploy 24 inches away from Fendar's line. Now, there's also another special rule in this scenario, which is that the elves are not allowed to engage the dwarves unless they either cross the line or they start shooting. So that can be a tactical consideration for the dwarves. The dwarf force consists of 1500 points. It has to take Crud, and Crud is a, um, an, a dwarf hero, a regular dwarf hero. This is fought, by the way, between the 4th edition High Elf book and the 4th edition Dwarf book. Crud has a movement of 3, web skill 6, ballistic skill 5, strength 4, toughness 5, 2 wounds, initiative 4, 3 attacks, and a leadership of 10. He has a hand weapon, a double-handed mattock, and he wears heavy armor for a 5 plus armor save. Crud's mattock is inscribed with a master wound of swiftness, meaning he always strikes first. And as Crud has a special rule, which is Crud's pride. He is proud and arrogant eager to prove himself a worthy leader of the rebellion. He knows that he must encourage the other rebels by his example. This plus their drunkenness makes him a foolhardy and uh, makes him foolhardy and boastful, and so he will always accept a challenge. Now the dwarves have the uh, special rules, uh, hate elves, all the dwarves in this army hate elves. And they are drunk, which means that you have to roll for each unit at the start of the turn. On a roll of a 1, they cannot move this turn. They stop to puke, lie down, or hold their heads in their hands, muttering, I must keep off the Bugmans before battle. They can still shoot or fight, but they will suffer a minus 1 penalty until their next, uh, to minus 1 to hit penalty until their next drunken behavior roll. On a roll of a 2 to 3, the dwarves don't do anything odd or daft this turn, and on a roll of 4 to 6, they are eager to get to grips with the foe. They move forward 1 inch, uh, plus 1 more inch for each rank in the unit, up to a maximum of 4. This is to represent the dwarves at the back pushing their pals forward. And this is a move that is made before their normal move. So if you have Dwarf Handgunners, the Thunderers, and you can take a unit of Thunderers in this list, um, then and they roll a 4 to 6, then they stagger forward and they lose their ability to shoot. That is actually included in the rules. For the rest, you can have up to one Dwarf Battle Standard Bearer. Each unit can have a champion that may have one Runic item up to 25 points. The Battle Standard Bearer can have a Runic Standard up to 50 points. You can have any number of miners in your uh, army. Um, this is an exception to the normal rules in the rulebook in the Dwarf Army book, which says you can only have one unit of miners. 
You can also have any number of dwarf warrior units. You can have up to one unit of long beards, up to one unit of iron breakers, and zero to one unit of thunderers. The dwarves and the uh, elves have in this scenario a um, special deployment rule, which says that if your army has finished deploying before the other, then for each unit you you continue deploying in turn. So um, you roll off and say the dwarves win first a dwarf unit, then an elf unit, etc. And say the dwarves have finished first, but the elves have not yet finished. Then the elf player puts a unit down, and where the dwarf player would be next, instead of putting a unit down, he can now move one of his units four inches forwards. And this can be um, any unit, and, and units can be moved multiple times up to a maximum of 8 inches. So this is to represent a sort of a head start that you get with the dwarves or with the elves, depending on who has a smaller force. And this rule is also um, revisited in the last battle of this, and uh, last scenario of this campaign. The high elves also consist of 1500 points. They must take Fendar as their general. Fendar is an elf hero. He rides an elven steed. Fendar has a movement of six, web, uh, sorry, movement of five, web skill six, ballistic skill six, strength and toughness of four, two wounds, initiative eight, three attacks, and a leadership of nine. He uh, has hand weapon, a light armor shield, and he is riding a barded elven steed for a three plus armor save. And he has the Blade of Darting Steel, which means that he automatically hits in hand-to-hand -hand combat. Apart from Fender, you can take uh, any number of champions. Each unit can have a champion, and each champion can have a magic item up to 25 points. You can take 0-1 to one High Elf Mage, which can have a magic item up to 50 points, and the mage may be on foot or ride an Elven Steed. You can have 0 to 1 unit of Silver Helms, you can have any number of units of Reaver Knights, 0 to 1 unit of Shadow Warriors, and any number of units of High Elf Warriors, High Elf Spearmen, and High Elf Archers. Now there would be two ways to win this scenario. You could either meet the Sudden Death condition or the regular Victory condition. The regular victory condition means that the game uh, in this case lasts for 5 turns and at the end of the 5th turn you count the number of victory points. If the High Elves win, uh, or if the event is a draw, then it will be counted as a High Elf victory, and if the Dwarves win, it will be a Dwarf victory. However, there's also a sudden death condition, which means that if Crud is slain or flees the table, the Elves win automatically, because when the ringleader of this rebellion is dead, then the rebellion itself will soon die out. This battle was also fought between two studio armies and it was Gath Thorpe and Nigel Stillman that each commanded one of the armies. And in the back of the booklet they have a list of which of the armies they used and so if you want to replay these historical armies you can. I'm not going to name all these different units, I'm just going to name the options here that are on these battle scrolls that came with the box. I am however going to say how this battle went when they fought it. Because they also have a, a couple of paragraphs uh, which is a very brief battle report. And the battle was that um, in this case the dwarves 
had a decisive victory over the elves. The elf battle line gave way. But the dwarves and they were getting tired. They had enormous hangovers. So they didn't really feel like pursuing the elves all the way. The elves fell back to Tol Eldrot. They could regroup. And Crud fell back to Kazath front and instead of attempting to overthrow Helgar. Drong seized the mines. So after this battle Drong is in control of the mines. He hired the rebels as a militia to guard the mines and Crud is under the command. Uh, sorry Crud is the commander of this group. Now as with uh, all of these campaigns whatever happens in this battle determines what will happen at the final battle. These three battles, they lead up to the final battle. And in this case, it is uh, the victory gains are that if Crud wins the battle, he will take over the mines and he puts them to work in the service of Drong. This will allow Drong to build up a contingent of war machines for the last scenario. So if the dwarves win, then the, the um, dwarves can have a up to five war machines in the final battle. But if the elves should win, the dwarves can have only one war machine in the final battle. Now, even though this takes place at about the time of the War of the Beard, um, this is still in the early stages of Warhammer Fantasy battles. So the later rule that you had when you fought with the War of the Beard armies that was in 6th edition in the White Dwarf and Warhammer Chronicles, uh, where you could have no gunpowder units, that does not apply here. So you can have gunpowder units. Uh, the only limit is gyrocopters, and we will get to that because being able to field gyrocopters will be determined by what happens at the brewery in scenario 3. But first we have scenario 2. So now the mines are in control of Drong, and Helgar does not really um, see many other options, so she tries to vie for peace. And the way she does this is she gives a big celebration, a big feast, and she invites Drong and many of his kinsmen from Karakthrut. And Drong, he uh, comes over. He gets a little bit intoxicated, as dwarves do on these occasions. And he sees that Helgar is um, pint for pint matching him with the amount of ale she is able to quaff. She has uh, maybe no beard, but she does have very long plates. So, well, actually, she is pretty decent for a dwarf woman. Uh, why not just marry her? In doing so... Uh, Drong will ensure that his offspring will hold Karak, um, uh, will hold uh, Helgar's hold. Uh, sorry, I'm getting a little bit confused with all these dwarf names here. Uh, not a dwarf player. Craig uh, Bryn is the name of the dwarf hold that Helgar holds. Drong marries Helgar. Helgar says yes, and um, everything seems to be going well. So now that the Peace has been made between these two dwarf holds. Uh, trading can resume with the rest of the dwarf kingdom. Trading can also resume with the elves. And the elves are actually glad for this as well. Because now 
they do not only have to trade with Helgar, but the pass is open and they can trade with the rest of the dwarves that lie beyond. However, not everything is going well according to everybody. Because there is a dwarf runesmith called Grung, Grung Grudgebringer. And Grung is uh, one of those dwarves that does not like elves out of principle, even before, the, this is still before the War of the Beard, so there have been some skirmishes, but not many of the dwarves have really a reason to hate the elves, not the way they do in later eras. Uh, Grung is the exception to the rule. He is uh, someone who has a grudge against all elves. And um, he, well, he was there at the feasts of Drong and, and uh, Drong likes him, he's a friend of Drong, and uh, Drong likes hearing news that he brings. Drong becomes very drunk at this feast, and he starts telling uh, about why the elves are so nasty, and why no dwarf worth his salt would have anything to do with the elves. Drong is convinced by this rhetoric, and um, Helgar, of course, she, she sees this, she hears this, she knows trouble is on the way. She sends some messages to um, to Eldrod, some secret messages to, to let him know about this, that some unrest is stirring. Grung, the next day after the feast, he goes out again and he takes uh, not the road to the pass, but the dwarf high road. And this is a road that is only accessible for a couple of months during the summer and even then it is treacherous. Um, Grunk takes this road and there is an ambush by elves. And this is the second battle, simply called the ambush. Now this battle, um, the battlefield is uh, littered with a couple of hills and some forests. On the dwarf player edge, on the long table edge, there is what is called the chasm of doom. A steep ravine, any dwarf or any elf that goes over the battlefield on that side uh, they will be lost, they will fall to their deaths, and so you don't want that to happen. Uh, along the, the Chasm of Doom, and in, in parallel to the Chasm of Doom, runs the Dwarf Road. And it is on this Dwarf Road that the Dwarf player deploys. He deploys his troops in a column, they march uh, from the Dwarf's left to the Dwarf's right, and in the middle of this column is Grung. Um, let me see, there are some rules of course in this battlefield. Uh, one of them is that if an elf pursues a dwarf unit or vice versa, then the pursuers will hold at the table edge. They will not pursue willingly into the ravine, um, because even in a frenzied fervor they are not that stupid. The elves are in ambush, they start, uh, the dwarves deploy first, then the elves deploy. The battle lasts for five turns and the battle is won if Grung is slain, plunges to his death or um, uh, I guess also flees off the table, although it doesn't say here. But at least if, if the runesmith dies, then the elves win. And otherwise, if the runesmith survives, then you will win on victory points. Um... If Grung escapes via the dwarf player's uh, side or dwarf player's left, so the way he continues uh, towards the way he was going, 
then Grung is assumed to survive on a score of a 2 plus. So you have to roll on a d6. And if he rolls a 1, then a prowling eagle or mountain lion swoops down and gets him later. Poor Runesmith. If it is a draw, then the dwarves win this battle. Now the Runesmith retinue, the name of the battle scroll, consists of a Grung. And Grung is a master Runesmith. He has the profile that goes with it. He has movement 3, web skill 7. Ballistic skill 5, strength 4, toughness 6, 3 wounds, 4 initiative, 3 attacks, and a leadership of 10. He carries only a hammer, he has no armor save, but he does have a magic item, the fiery ring of Thori. And this ring is a, an item, it can be used only once during the battle, it may be used at any time during the dwarf player's turn, as long as there is no enemy within 6 inches. And what this ring does, it creates a barrier of flame exactly 6 inches in front of Grung and the unit that he accompanies. And it is as wide as the unit is. Well, it is as long as the unit is wide, I should say. The flame lasts until the start of the dwarf player following turn. The barrier cannot be cast onto enemy models, and only enemies immune to the effect of the flame can cross the barrier without suffering harm. And all other models they have to hold, including eagles who will not risk getting their feathers singed. The barrier cannot be shot through for shooting purposes, considered as a man-high unit, and it blocks line of sight. And Grung has the special rule that he hates elves. Apart from Grung, you can have up to one battle standard bearer who can have a banner, a runic banner of uh, 75 points. Each unit can have a champion with a runic item up to 25 points. And you can have a 0 to 1 units of longbeards, 0 to 1 units of hammerers, 0 to 1 units of crossbowmen, and 0 to 1 units of slayers. And you have to create a 1000 point army in total from this. Now if the dwarves win the battle, then Grung will join Drong's army. And then uh, he will be there in the final battle. So you have a runesmith. Grung is the only runesmith for a thousand miles around, so if Grung is not in Drong's army, then the dwarves cannot include any runesmiths. And you can, uh, of course, also choose not to buy, rune, uh, buy uh, Grung the runesmith at the final battle. That's, of course, up to you as the dwarf player. If the dwarves lose the battle, then there is another penalty that you cannot spend more than 150 points in total on runic items or magic items. Because you don't have a runesmith and you only have to make do with the items that were already in the hold. Now the elves are being led by Tethan, and Tethan is a master mage and also has the profile that goes with it. All of these characters they follow the exact profile and rules that are in the um, respective army books, except that maybe sometimes they have an extra rule, such as Grung, when he, where he hates the elves. Tithan is a master mage. He has a movement of 5, weapon skill 4, ballistic skill 4, strength 4, toughness 4, 3 wounds, initiative 8, 2 attacks, and a leadership of 8. He is on foot because you cannot have any mounts in this pass the terrain just won't allow it and he carries the black amulet which gives him a four plus ward save and any wound that is inflicted to him in hand-to-hand -hand combat 
has a chance to be rebounded um, or is rebounded I should say no armor saving throws allowed however for each wound saved you have to roll a d6 and on a roll of a 1 the amulet's power is exhausted apart from Thetan you can have a, a champion for every unit which can have a magic item up to 25 points you can have 0 to 1 units of sword masters they can have a magic standard up to 25 points 0 to 3 great eagles, one, 0 to 1 units of shadow warriors, and you can have any number of elf spearmen and elf archers. When the studio armies fought this battle, Grung, he was uh, surrounded of course, but he managed to escape. The elves were unable to get anywhere near the runesmith, and the battle ended. Grung got away under the cover of darkness and the dwarves won this battle. So they could have Grung in the final battle of the campaign. And they are also not limited to 150 points of magic items. Which is, well, still nice but rather limiting for a 3000 point final battle. After this episode uh, we continue to scenario 3 which is the brewery bash. Drong and Helgar have a falling out. Not everything is well with the newly wed couple. And the reason for this is that Drong, he blames Helgar for the ambush. He thinks that his wife has tipped off the, uh, the elves and that uh, they have, for that reason, ambushed Drong's old friend Grung the Runesmith. So Helgar retaliates by holding a, uh, another friend of Drong hostage, and that's Drong's brewmaster, Larks. Larks has his own brewery, and this is where the, um, the cardboard terrain comes into play, the cardboard terrain that came with the box. This third scenario is going to be all about this dwarf brewery. Drong sends some troops to... Uh, relieve the brewery to relieve uh, um, Larks from his prison. Larks has been imprisoned in a fortunately empty beer barrel, uh, one of those big copper brewing kettles. And uh, he is being held there and, and uh, Helgar has uh, indeed sent for the elves. The elves are this, uh, standing at the brew house. They are the, uh, defending the brewery from the dwarves that come to get Larks free. The reason why Drong wants his brewmaster back is because without beer the dwarves simply won't fight and this is reflected in the victory conditions. You have to uh, rescue the brewmaster as a dwarf player and if you don't then um, the dwarves can have I believe 500 points less troops in the final battle which is a rather large number so um, you have to get the dwarf brewer free before the battle ends this battle lasts for six turns and the um, elf force is deployed first then the dwarf force is deployed and the dwarves they are coming in under the cover of mist they are being led by Skag the stealthy and Skag is able to um, approach the brewery uh, up to uh, 
up to 12 inches. Uh, well, that's of course 12 inches in game board terms. There are three brewery buildings that make up the tabletop. You have the beer hall, you have the ale store, and you have the brew house itself, where the brewmaster is being kept. There are some walls, there are some hills, there's a forest. And the uh, dwarves have the... Uh, no, sorry, the elves have the first turn because they have better eyesight and they see the dwarves before the dwarves realize that they are so close. How do you rescue the brewmaster? The way to do this is to simply move a dwarf unit up against the brew house and for every dwarf trooper, for every dwarf model that is in base contact with the brew house, you roll a d6. If a 6 is rolled, then the uh, brewmaster is freed, the sudden death victory condition has been reached. And if no 6 is rolled, then you have to roll again in the next turn. And this happens in the movement phase. And you even roll if the dwarf are um, engaged in hand-to-hand -hand combat, um, but you don't roll if they are fleeing. Because of course, if you are fleeing, you don't have time to rescue someone else you have to uh, think of yourself now since the elves go first i'm going to start with the elves this time and the elves are led by ardath ardath is a high elf commander uh, he's a regular high elf hero he has the same profile as the hero that we saw in the first battle he also rides an elven steed he um, wears a magic item which is the talisman of hoeth and this allows him to use battle magic spells as if he were a level 2 wizard, a uh, mage champion. And even though he is wearing armor, he can still cast these spells. And Ardath has a special rule that he hates dwarves. Apart from Ardath, you can have, uh, once again, a unit champion for each unit that can have up to 25 points of magic items. For your regiments, you may take 0 to 1 unit of silver helms or dragon princes. And they can have a magic standard up to 75 points. You can have any number of Reaver Knights, 0 to 1 unit of Lord and Sea Guards, 0 to 1 unit of Sword Masters with a magic standard up to 25 points, any number of High Elf Spearmen, High Elf Warriors, or High Elf Archers, and you can also have 0 to 1 Repeater Bolt Thrower, which you are going to take, of course, since you have been fighting highly armored dwarves for at least two battles. Now the dwarves are being led by Skag the Stealthy, and Skag, he is a dwarf hero, he has the profile of a dwarf hero, the same as uh, we saw in the first battle again. Skag has a hand weapon, a double-handed axe and heavy armor, so 5 plus armor save. He is wearing three runes of luck that have been inscribed on his helmet and a rune of luck allows you to reroll a single die at any point during the battle. And he has the special rule called stealth and that means that Skag, well he's called Skag the stealthy, he always has a cunning plan, a trick up his sleeve and the rule basically says that you can deploy a unit of up to uh, one unit that is of up to 200 points anywhere in either of the two flanking zones, but not nearer than 8 inches from any elf. So you can have one unit coming in over the flank, because uh, Skag has thought of this before the battle to send one unit off to make a flanking maneuver. Apart from Skag, you can have only champions and slayer champions in this um, 
in this army, no battle standards for the for a change. Each champion may have a rune item up to 25 points, as is usual. The regiments, uh, you can have 0 to 1 units of hammerers, 0 to 1 units of slayers, any number of dwarf warriors, dwarf crossbowmen and dwarf thunderers. They can also have 0 to 1 war machine. This war machine uh, can however not be a gyrocopter and the reason for that is that the gyrocopter uh, it needs some high octane fuel which has to be brewed by the brewmaster and the brewmaster is being held hostage. Now when the studio armies fought this battle the elves were able to hold off the dwarf attack. The dwarves were not able to reach the brewmaster so they could not have any gyrocopters because they did not have the high octane fuel that is for some reason being brewed in an alehouse. And the uh, dwarves, because they did not have any beer, drunks dwarves, they lost some of the impetus and they had a 500 point reduction because of the, the dwarves that deserted. That's what you get when you don't get your dwarves any beer. Now this is the third battle and the last one, and this is the same with all of these campaign booklets, the last one is sort of the culmination of all three combined. So all the characters that we saw in the previous three battles will return once again. This is the battle of Crag Bryn. Drong gathers his army and Drong thinks, well, uh, even though I don't have my brewmaster, I do face uh, my darling wife's forces and I do face the treacherous elven forces. So what is he going to do? He's going to attack the elves first and then later when the strongest force has been defeated, turn around and besiege Craig Bryn, the dwarf hold that uh, Helgar holds and the one that Drong and all his ancestors have been after since the early days. The elves, they, um, they, they know this, they see this coming, they decide to fight, there's a little bit of dialogue here, and the elves then, um, when they have decided on, on their war council that they are going to fight, messages reach them of the dwarf army approaching. The Battle of Cragbrin is fought between three forces. You have the High Elves and you have the Dwarves as usual, but you also have Queen Helgar. She has a special retinue of Slayers and a Battle Standard, and there are some very interesting rules for this, which I will get to. The battlefield is um, in such a way that there is a river running along the short edge, but uh, not really, it runs parallel to the edge, up to 12 inches away from it. And behind the river, in the exact center of the battlefield, is Helgar's deployment zone. And there is a bridge crossing the stream over there. The dwarves deploy on one side, the high elves deploy on the other side. And uh, the rules for this scenario are as follows. The scenario lasts for 7 turns, it's a big battle, 3000 points aside. Uh, you roll off to see who goes first, and just as with the very first battle, where you had the battle line drawn, also here the army that has finished deploying first can start moving up while the other player is still deploying. Now Helgar is a little bit tossed between who she will support, because it is of course very shameful for a dwarf to join elves to fight her kinsmen. 
On the other hand, uh, Drong and Helgar have been, at least their families, have been in a grudge for a very long time. Helgar has decided to stay neutral, and she can always then afterwards say to the winning party, well, I stayed neutral, but I was going to help you uh, should things have taken a turn for the worse. However, every turn the dwarf player uh, has to, I believe it is the dwarf player, has to roll a die, and the, uh, on the roll of a six, Helgar will join the battle. Let me check that here real quick. Uh, Helgar's treachery, this special rule is called... Um, yeah, at the start of each turn, each, oh sorry, at the start of each turn, each player rolls a dice, and if the result is a double, that's the way it was going to go, Helgar joins the battle on the dwarf side. So, uh, you both roll a dice, and if you both roll the same number, then Helgar will join the dwarfs. If you both roll a different number, then uh, Helgar will remain neutral, unless she is attacked. And if one unit attacks Helgar, she will immediately join the other army. So, uh, don't attack Helgar in this battle. Helgar's retinue consists of Queen Helgar, who is a dwarf lord with the stats to boot, movement 3, weapon skill 7, ballistic skill 6, strength 4, toughness 5, weapon skill 3, initiative 5, more attacks, and a leadership of 10. She has an axe, heavy armor, and a shield um, for a 4 plus armor save. She has the magic item Bronze Axe, the axe from her ancestor. And it is a runic weapon with the rune of faith, which means that it causes double wounds against the first character hit. Helgar is accompanied by her battle standard. Helgar is accompanied by her trusty battle standard bearer Loki Whitebeard. He has the stats of a regular dwarf battle standard bearer, movement 3, weapon skill 5, ballistic skill strength and toughness all 4. One wound as all battle standards have in the hero hammer era. Initiative 3, 2 attacks, and a leadership of 9. He has only a, uh, a hand weapon, an axe, and he carries the battle standard bearer, uh, the battle standard, which is inscribed with 3 runes of battle. And a rune of battle gives you plus 1 combat result, so that's a plus 3 combat result in total there because of the runes. Apart from Helgar and the battle standard bearer, there can be 0-3 Slayer Champions, and the Slayer Champions can have a runic weapon up to 25 points. And um, uh, the uh, rest of the uh, retinue consists of a, number, uh, a unit of Slayer, a single unit of Slayers. Now this retinue has a random points value, and this uh, points value for this retinue, not including Helgar and the Battle Standard Bearer, is determined by rolling a d6 and multiplying the result by 100. So you can have 100 to 600 points that you can spend on Slayers. And uh, up to half of these points may be spent on the 0 to 3 champions. And the rest must be spent on regular Slayers. Now this is the uh, separate battle scroll for Queen Helgar. And we have also another battle scroll for the army of Kazat Trunt. This is 300 points if you uh, have won all the battles. If you haven't, then it's 2500 points. This um, has also some characters that you must take, which are Drong the Heart, Krud, Mad Matok, 
and Scrag the Stealthy, you can have some more heroes. Um, you can have the uh, Master Runesmith Grung if you have uh, gotten him through the scenario, if you have unlocked him. You can have a Battle Standard Bearer with a um, with runes up to a value of 150 points. So if you are unlucky and you don't have the uh, Master Runesmith, then you could just dump your entire runic allowance on that battle standard. You can have a champion for each unit, which can have an item up to 25 points. And your regiments, they um, can be one unit of longbeards, up to one unit of longbeards with a magic banner up to 50 points. With zero to one units of hammeros with a magic banner up to 50 points. Zero to one iron breakers, which a... Uh, with a um, banner of up to 50 points, and they can only be included if the dwarves won the very first battle. You can have any number of dwarf warriors, any number of dwarf crossbowmen, any number of thunderers, and a unit of miners. And this may only be included once again if you won the first battle, and if they are included, they must be led by crud. You can have 0-5 to five war machines with the restrictions mentioned before, uh, unless you did not get the brewery then you cannot have any gyrocopters. And if you did not get um, the very first battle, you didn't get control of the mines, you can only have one war machine. Now this army is being led by Drong the Heart and just like Helgar he is a regular dwarf general. He has a movement of 3, web skill 7, ballistic skill 6, strength 4, toughness 5, 3 wounds, initiative 5, 4 attacks and leadership 10. He carries a double-handed hammer, hammer, heavy armor and a shield. Um, it says here for an armor save of 3+, but by my calculation that should be a 4+, for the heavy armor and shield. The hammer is a magical heirloom. It is a runic weapon inscribed with a rune of smiting, which causes d6 wounds. And Drong has hates elves as special rules. Speaking of elves, we also have the army of Tol Eldroth. And this is led by Eldroth, the high elf in general, with stats to boot. He is an elf lord on a steed, movement 5, web skill, ballistic skill 7, strength and toughness 4. 3 wounds, initiative 9, 4 attacks, leadership 10. He has light armor, a shield, and he is on a barded elven steed for a armor save of 3+. And he carries the sword of Tol Eldroth, which is a heartseeker sword, meaning that he can reroll any attacks that miss. And I guess that goes for the hits that miss and not the 2 wounds. For the rest, uh, the army consists of 3000 points, um, it must take Eldroth, it must take Fendar from the first scenario, Tithan the Master Wizard from the second scenario, and Arthad the General from the third scenario. You can have other heroes from the High Elf army list, and each hero may have a magic item up to a value of 50 points, and those heroes may be either on foot or on an elven steed or on a chariot. So no monsters for this scenario. You can have 0 to 1 battle standard bearers. You can have any, any unit can have a champion with a magic item up to 25 points. And the regiments consist of uh, a unit of tall Eldrod guards, which are for all intents and purposes phoenix guards, which can have a banner of up to 50 points. 
you can have 0 to 1 units of Silver Helms with a magic standard up to 50 points. 0 to 1 units of Dragon Princess, also with a magic standard up to 50 points. Any number of Reaver Knights. 0 to 1 units of Seaguard, 0 to 1 units of Sword Masters with a banner of up to 50 points. 0 to 1 units of White Lions with a banner up to 50 points. Any number of Elf Spearmen and Elf Archers. Up to 3 Bolt Throwers and up to 3 Great Eagles. That is it for the Grudge of Drong. And the Grudge of Drong has been recorded in Dwarf history in what is called the Saga of Drong or the Saga of Drong and Helgar. Now when the studio fought this battle, it was a decisive victory for the High Elves. And that is of course something that is going down in the Book of Grudges. And it has been recorded here also in the scenario booklet. Be it known unto the uttermost ends of dwarfdom, that the king of Kares Akarak, long of beard, requires all dwarfs to untiringly and unceasingly seek vengeance against Tol Eldroth in retribu retribution for slaying Drong the Thrundling. This is the entry that has been um, recorded in the Great Book of Grudges. That is going to be it for this episode. Thank you very much for listening and have a great week. Thanks for listening to the War Games Orchard. If you enjoy the show, why not join us on Patreon? There you'll gain access to all of our bonus content for any level of donation. It's a great way to help us keep going and enjoy extra Orchard content. If Patreon's not your thing, please consider giving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice and sharing this show with friends. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on Facebook at The Warhammer Orchard and The War Games Orchard, or by email at wargamesorchard at gmail.com. Mm -hmm.